on today's America's show. podcast host. <laughs> so off the rails. So off the rails. So fast. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 7th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by both of my co-hosts. Yay! It's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. Does this mean I can be introduced first? Do you want to be introduced no, first? No, I don't. That would be too disruptive. Go Introduce Neil. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking Jeff would be introduced first. <laughs> So I'm joined by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. And in the studio, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Neil. Neil's wearing Hi, a New Jersey Devils I hat. I am, yeah. This is for you. He did it for me. It is. It is. We we long talked about doing a uh, Devils podcast called Devs Talk. Uh, so I people think have already turned off just yes. hearing the word New Jersey <laughs> Devils. Please stop yeah. talking about that. <laughs> but this is this I'm is the pilot episode, oh, unofficial no. pilot <laughs> Devs Dev Talk. talk. Wow. All right, I'm going to leave. See you guys later. <laughs> Wait, you don't like talking so about the about worst Ka- NHL team? Second worst. <laughs> Second worst? The, the Red Wings are worst. What do you think about Kyle Palmieri's season? Uh, what what is year. happening What right a now? year. <laughs> okay, maybe I don't like having you both in the studio. <laughs> this is weird. But Happy New Year, you guys. This Happy is New, Year. The New Year. It's 2020. So nice. Yeah. We, uh, we haven't gotten a chance to talk about the dramatic fantasy football final well, in it was, the 538 It league. was dramatic from my perspective, but Jeff's going to act like he just didn't even pay any attention I'm to not going to act. I, I didn't pay attention. Jeff, mm-hmm. we know you set your lineup. <laughs> I, you set your lineup. You, I, I now, set, you did have Drew Locke at quarterback. Yeah, when did still. you pick up Drew Locke? Yeah, what kind late. of can we? We've been talking about this league all year. What kind of league is this where the team with Drew Locke and Gardner Minshew goes to the finals? <laughs> it's a sixteen-team league where we're all scraping yeah. the bottle of the barrel. I mean, don't, don't diminish my championship, Jeff. <laughs> Some of us didn't even make the playoffs. So that's true. Oof. What yeah, a, sixteen to make the finals of a sixteen. We should be proud of ourselves. It's right? kind of amazing that it was both of you too. That I know it was an all hot takedown and, final. And here I was thinking that it was because we were the ones that cared the most. But now I realize <laughs> that Jeff. <laughs> now it turns out only you cared, Neil. Only I and cared. you won, and I won. Well, that's good. <laughs> it's good. Is it that good the though? Cared, Is it good? Won. That's so sad because I I even had the championship banner printed up. <laughs> I was going to put it in at my desk, and now it just it's not even legitimate. You know. You're, really, you're still going to put it up at your desk. I'll have like a a, a ring ceremony next season. Next before season, first game of next season. It's pretty clear to me that next season we need um, stakes. We need I to know. have a prize of some kind. The, that was the, our mistake here. The the pride of of analyzing our results on this show every week wasn't <laughs> enough. Know. We should also we should make it public so that people can shame us. That's um, true. That would be or, fun. What about a trophy? There's a trophy right there in the studio. Yeah. We can't get a trophy. Sure. We can get a trophy. Sure. You yes. could have. I want something. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> here, I'll, I'll I want, I want a, you a runner-up trophy. A coffee or a lunch or something, you know. You know well, a banner. I didn't even know there was a banner. Interestingly enough, <laughs> uh, one of the great narratives of this season was it did involve bu- people buying other people lunches. It was I literally why I lost because of that <laughs> That's stupid not why trade. That is not why you lost. It's Sarah. a big part of no. why I lost. No, it is because I kept stupid Trubisky on my team yeah, all you season because of the joke. Just terrible. Next year, next year I'll make the playoffs, man. Next year, you're like the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> That's exactly. You just hired Mike McCarthy as your. <laughs> fantasy consultant people are always telling me i'm like the dallas cowboys 
On today's show, our model and conventional wisdom didn't do so well at predicting the NFL wildcard weekend. We'll look at what the upsets mean as we go deeper into the playoffs. Ahead of the college football championship, we'll dig into whether Joe Burrow may have just had the best season in college quarterback history. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The wildcard weekend lived up to its name with three of the four games ending in upsets, according to the odds given by the 538 model. The Tennessee Titans took out the defending champion New England Patriots. The Seattle Seahawks upended the Philadelphia Eagles. And the Minnesota Vikings pulled off the biggest upset of the weekend, according to our model, when they beat the New Orleans Saints. Here's Vikings tight end Kyle Rudolph, who got the game-winning touchdown on SportsCenter after the game. I was just so proud of our guys that, that fought. No, no one gave us a chance, and, and rightfully so. Since the Vikings' victory was our biggest upset, let's start there. Did we miss something going into the game, Neil? Or is Rudolph right that we should not have given them much of a chance? <laughs> yeah, I like whenever you say that no one believed in us, and then you add rightfully yeah. so at the end of it. I found that to be um, uh, a little different than usual. But, you know, I think that our model was kind of looking at this game. We thought that the Saints were just you know, the better all-around team across, you know, most of the dimensions, you know, passing offense and defense and, like, you know, specialty. <laughs> offense, you know, defense, things specialty. Things that generally win things games. that like win games. Offense and defense. Yes. Uh, so, you know, statistically, the Saints had had a better season, especially if you account for the fact that in the middle of that season – they didn't have Drew Brees, and uh, Teddy Bridgewater sort of eked out some wins for them, and then Brees came back, and Brees played great down the stretch of the season. So I think any model that was trying to predict that game also was in New Orleans and home teams this weekend notwithstanding. Home teams have a really good track record in the NFL playoffs. So I, I think that this is just one of those things where a team sometimes – outperforms expectations. And on the other side, the Saints really kind of underperformed. Uh, Breeze couldn't really get anything going. They didn't get anything, uh, much of anything from Alvin Kamara. The defense couldn't come up with stops, uh, you know, down the stretch when it needed to. So I don't know. Sometimes the underdog wins. I don't know. Any given Sunday, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was on Sunday, right? It was on Sunday. <laughs> there were games on Saturday, so I had to yeah, think yeah, about yeah. it for a second. Is it possible, though, that with Adam Thielen back, and with Dalvin Cook, that this is just a, a way better offense and a dangerous team to play. I mean, like when early in the year, they, they looked a little bit like this. I remember a couple of those games. They looked like they're just going to pound the ball at you and have these two great receivers on the outside posing a looming threat. And Cousins can get what he wants whenever he chooses to pass. <laughs> Play action deep. I feel like you're baiting me right now. No, oh, look, I'm just saying. I, I look. I've been higher on this team than the Viking fan. That's true. I understand there's some history there with the Vikings and why you kind of you know are cautious about your team mm -hmm. and your emotions. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. they were they were better than I think people gave them a shot. And I think they looked pretty bad, especially that last couple of games when Madison and Cook were out. And, and I think that was like a little bit of recency bias. People thinking that that. You know, they were going to be that team, and they weren't. I mean, those guys were healthy, and they looked good. And to your credit, Jeff, you took them in our I did. Super Bowl draft. I did. I'm higher on the Vikings than the Vikings fan. That's – I it's mean, you, you're talking – yeah, you talk like that's like a feat and like talk to any Vikings fan, and that's probably true. I think, you know, the the Packer game in Week 16 was the game that made me think this team does not have a chance in the playoffs. But I see what you mean, Sarah, when you're, uh, you know – 
so much had been made and probably still will be made about Cousins in these sort of crucial games, just games against good teams. Like we looked at the splits uh, earlier in the season. This has been like a multi-year um, trend for him that when he has to face you know, under average teams, he does really well. He looks like, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but then falls off a little bit uh, when he plays better teams. And so like that 58.8 quarterback rating that he had against the um, Packers in that sort of very important, they didn't know they would make the playoffs right. at that point. Um, week 16 game. Oh, you know, they actually did because the Rams had lost already. So they were uh, in, so but they, they knew, still could have won the, the seeding, division. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we thought the seeding would actually sort of um, come back to haunt them. Right. Because by being the sixth seed, that's why you have to go to New Orleans and and play the Saints. Right. In our weekly NFL Slack chat before this weekend, I actually said that this was the kind of game the Vikings might win because the pressure was sort of off of them. They weren't expected to win. They were going to a you know a very hostile environment, um, and they they don't tend to do well on a big stage. They have you know Kirk Cousins has never won a Monday Night Football game. Well, so do you think that there's anything to that, though? Like, is know. there any kind of, uh, you know, a stat head, shouldn't we uh, dismiss the notion? Well, and are, also, aren't those watered down by, like, a lot of bad Redskin teams he was on those games? Like, that, that's his career numbers, right? I mean, he also hasn't won one for the Vikings. Well, yeah, sure. Two but that's only two seasons. Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right, Neil, that, like, this this is kind of – this isn't quantifiable, and so I should probably let go of it. But Well, it is quantifiable in the sense that he did have that split. The thing that's yeah. maybe not quantifiable is how much persistence does that split have or predictiveness. Right, and like – how you do under pressure, like what does that even mean and how can you quantify that? So, oh, and you can redefine that as much as you want sure. to sort of fit whatever yeah. narrative you want. Yeah. And Kyle Rudolph can sort of spin it in the opposite direction. Right, yeah. I am thrilled that they won. It was uh, it was a super fun game. I didn't think they were going to win until like well after it was over. <laughs> I mean, I really did think um, the last play would probably be overturned. So so let's talk about that. That would have been terrible. <laughs> should that Should the last play, that touchdown – have been reviewed for offensive pass interference. Is the question here, was it offensive pass interference? Well, both, right? It, was it, it or should it have been I, reviewed? I, so I think it, 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 if it was called offensive pass interference, I don't think a lot of people would have been, like, outraged. But that being said, I mean, there's certainly a lot of irony considering it was the Saints and it was Sean Payton who, like, wanted this rule change. And it would have been, like, perfect – bow to tie on this whole debacle <laughs> with the interference review to, right. to give the saints another shot because of that but um it, it was consistent with how they've been calling that all year which is that they really i mean how many times do we see that over overturned almost never it was really never but also just the way it was called there was contact on both sides there wasn't a clear advantage gained yeah. by any of that he like barely Pushed off. I mean, it was really not much of a push yeah, off at all. Yeah. But like, if, if, they, if they had thrown the flag, you would have been like, okay. I well, mean, I would have been, been reviewed, furious, right? but it, and it would have been not overturned, <laughs> right? Because yeah. this is a great rule that they just <laughs> never use. You know, I, but the thing for me is, I think that it if it had been flagged on the play and they reviewed it. I think it would have been – I don't know. May, maybe that's a little tough to overturn and then be like, oh, game's over on this overturn. Right, yeah. And that's the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that officials by nature have 
no interest in overturning things that you saw with your eyes on the field yeah. that determine you know win or lose in that particular moment for right. the most part. Right. So I think that that plays a role. Now, should it? You know, I think. Uh, Maybe you could make a case that there should be no difference between your willingness to uh, to review and overturn that call, which literally determines whether Team A or Team B gets eliminated from the playoffs, and a play in the first quarter. You have to kind of take that into account, too. And pass interference is, I mean, it's always a mystery. You know, Darrell Rivas was considered a great corner basically because he got away with pass interference on every play. And that was a skill. Um, so it's like catcher framing in baseball. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, which is essentially cheating, right? Like, yeah, che- this was deceiving, a, a ball that deceiving I'm the human you umpires, yeah, exactly. Which then will go away with machine umpires. So yeah, Darrell Rivas really uh, would not function yeah. under robot refs. But but I think the rule was in place. I get what the NFL was doing. It was to, essentially to avoid what happened to the Saints last year, which is to miss an egregious, obvious pass interference. And Kyle Rudolph, that was not that an egregious, egregious, obvious. Right. So yeah. so it was consistent. They they called it the way they've been calling all year and it would have been you know while it would have made people in new orleans happy (laughs) i don't think that would have been a great outcome for the nfl it's an interesting thing about replay and about what the role of the ref is like i think we we want justice we want things to always be fair but they just never are i mean i yell at my tv screen that there is holding basically on every play there is (laughs) there is (laughs) and like there's nothing really like that's not going to get called on every play can you imagine? The games would be like eight hours long. They would never – I mean – and and so we want this like – we want justice. We want things to be called the right way as long as they go our way. Um, but that's just not Although how the, sports work. The Eagles-Seahawks game did kind of feel like that for a while when it was just like – didn't it feel like there was a penalty on almost every yeah. play for the yeah. first half? Yeah. yeah. Well, the non-call in the at the end of the Vikings Saints game, that was the end of the Saints season and the end of Drew Brees' current contract with the Saints, which is up in March. Brees turns forty-one in one week. Will he come back to the Saints, Neil? What do you think? I well, I you know I don't have any kind of inside information, <laughs> obviously, uh, but I do think that if we're comparing him coming back versus like Brady. You know, uh, uh, at mm-hmm. least uh, in terms of the, you know, not only the willingness of the player to come back to the team, but also the team to have the player back. It seems like Breeze much more likely to come back to the Saints. I mean, Breeze was really good uh, aside from the way he played in that um, playoff game. He was one of the best quarterbacks in football this season. He had the third highest QBR. He led the league in completion percentage. Um, so he still seems capable of functioning at a really high level. And the way the Saints are constructed, it seems like it would be sort of a no-brainer to, to just make it happen and take another shot with him. Regardless of how many takes we've heard uh, about Taysom Hill being the, the future <laughs> of the Saints at quarterback, that, that young, electrifying 30-year-old <laughs> Taysom Hill. Uh, I think I thought the point was made um, in our Slack chat yesterday that if the Saints were going to move on from Breeze to go to Hill, they would have done that while Breeze was hurt. Yeah, it would have been the perfect opportunity. Yeah. And Hill didn't even start a single no. game. Teddy Bridgewater. The, the dilemma they have is that they can't because Bridgewater's up too. He was a one-year deal. They, mm-hmm. they can't really keep both of them. I mean, Bridgewater showed enough that – Another team will will give him a, a contract, so I, I don't think they can afford to keep both of them. So they will have to make a decision. The decision is keeping Bridgewater over Breeze wouldn't make much sense, right? So and they do still have Hill. 
I, and they do still have so them. Why, and they can use yeah. them for all their, you know, gadget right. plays and right. yeah. Tebow inspired nonsense. <laughs> Although that deep ball was honestly better than Breeze's deep ball. <laughs> yeah. So That's, yeah. maybe he can throw the bombs. I think we're, we're conditioned to think of the Saints as this team that, especially at home in the Superdome, puts up ridiculous offensive numbers and can't be stopped and then can't play defense and wins shootouts. And it, they're just not that team at all anymore. They're pretty limited. In terms of what they can do, I mean, not limited. They have a good offense, but they're not, you know, the Saints teams, the Sean Payton teams of the past, and they actually play way better defense. So, yeah, we still mentally think they're going to go out there and put up forty every game, and and their offense really they changed don't need to a, put up forty if they can play defense, right? And their offense really changed a couple of years ago to be a little more balanced and not having, you know, having more of a running game. And Kamara, he, I mean, he didn't have a good game, but they didn't really, they either. didn't really. I I felt like they didn't use him enough right. to be honest. Yeah. And, he, Kamara has looked really bad since coming back from an injury, but the last couple of weeks it, he looked a little bit more like the Kamara who kind of owned the league for a couple of years. So I, I was surprised they didn't use him as much as they did. Yeah, there was lots of Latavius Murray in that game. Well, so the Vikings will face off this weekend against the San Francisco 49ers, who is my, I think, only team left from our Super Bowl draft. So is that true? That is that is true. Yeah. Wow. I know. Not oh, good. Yeah, you lost the Saints. The Panthers, the Cowboys. I mean, the, those guys didn't even the Jaguars. Make yeah. Hey, but I had the Bills in you there. You had the Bills. I had the Bills. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right. So the Vikings are the underdogs again, but they're the underdogs that have the best odds in this week's divisional round. As opposed to, our to model. being the ones with the worst, with the worst odds right. last week. Yeah. So <laughs> what does that portend for them, Jeff? Did it, can they pull off another upset? I feel like um, Sunday they kind of played the perfect game. So. I mean, do you not think so? According to my yelling, no. (laughs) You have really high expectations for the Vikings then. (laughs) I mean, this is ludicrous. They've played a great game in a very tough environment, and now they'll have to essentially go out there and do that again. Um, But, I mean, the the Niners' run defense is not amazing, so they can go with the same game plan of just giving it to Cook until (laughs) Cook can barely move and then throw in Madison and and do the same thing. Um, So we'll see. I mean— it's certainly possible. I mean, the, you look at the Niners' defense, especially over the last few weeks. Granted, it was tough opponents, but they were—I don't know if they were exposed, but they were giving up tons of points. Well, and they have a lot of injuries on defense, so that's a, certainly a concern for them too. I think. And the Vikings' defense has been really good in recent weeks. Well, probably the best in the league over the last you know six weeks of the season, including the playoffs, um, with the Patriots kind of you know coming back down to earth, the Niners coming back down to earth a little bit. So, I mean, the only concern there is that San Francisco is not really like a offense-centric team that much. We talked all year about how Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, as much as you might think for a team that went 13-3 and and had the type of season that they had, you, you would expect him to have played at like, you know, an all pro level or something like that. But he really wasn't that great. He was kind of average uh, for most of the season. Um, So, you know, if you take away that aspect of San Francisco, they still have the type of team that can kind of grind out a close defensive battle. One of the best defenses in the league. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because all we we want out of these playoffs is just another defensive struggle, right? That is what we want. That's 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 exciting. And Shanahan's familiar with Cousins. Yeah, He knows knows how to, to... scheme to stop the magic that is cousins the first thing is <laughs> so to, hard to play on that, national yeah. television right, yeah. and, so and, right Jack, there. and he's done it good he's job it, figured it out. yeah years of experience to, <laughs> to unlock that 
So the other big upset of the weekend was the Tennessee Titans knocking out the New England Patriots. Our model had a larger ELO spread for the Vikings game. But Neil, did that seem like the bigger upset? Well, it felt like a bigger upset, I think, because of the meaning of it. Jim Nance and Tony Romo could not stop talking about and speculating about whether it was Brady's last game with the Patriots, uh, Brady's last game, period. Although I think Brady himself kind of uh, dispelled that notion, like he wants to come back, Uh preferably with the Patriots, but, you know, uh, we wouldn't rule him out coming back with someone else. It's sort of the balls in the Patriots court right now. Uh, And so I think that was why, combined with the fact that the Patriots were heavy favorites, it was against the Titans, it was against Ryan Tannehill. It's not like they lost to, you know, Peyton Manning or someone like that. Uh, And they were playing at home. I mean, the Patriots were 12-2 and this decade at home in the playoffs going into that game. And so it was just sort of like all the things that we are used to not seeing from the Patriots happen. They they kind of did happen that night and there was a sense of finality to it, you know, that I think that was also kind of wishful thinking on the part of a lot of fans, a lot of, of other teams and, and people in the media and everything that they just so badly want to get out from under the the shadow of the Patriots that have been kind of hanging over the league for the past 20 years. I mean, it's been a long time. Everyone outside of New England was sort of ready for this result and, and ready for the, the takes about what it might mean. Well, I think, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, that we're all ready to see what happens with the Patriots. We're ready to see what Belichick or Brady can do without, without the each other. other. Yeah. yeah. And so it's sort of like, oh, is it really, is it happening? Is it going to happen this time, you guys? The whole game. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. But I don't think it was. I mean, I, at the end of the day, you know, going back to the Breeze conversation, it's a little bit less cut and dried, but I don't know who the Patriots would necessarily be able to get. Um, who would be better than Brady, you know, at this point in terms of the available QBs? They're not going to replace Brady yeah. with like, Man or Andy Dalton. Yeah. I mean, what would be the point of that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and they don't have Garoppolo. They don't have if they had successor. Garoppolo still, then it would be interesting. I think their decision would be easier for them. But their, I don't. Their I, backup is Jared Jarrett Stidham. Jarrett Stidham from Auburn, right? They don't even have Jacoby Brissett. If they had Jacoby Brissett still, then it would be more interesting. But I don't know how much what choices they have, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't feel like Belichick's going to want to like break in a rookie quarterback taken in the late first round. And do you think this will be like almost like the 2015 Broncos? I mean, they have a great defense, and it's just really do they sort have of, a great defense? Well, though? or did they just play the, the Dolphins year. and the Jets a lot? <laughs> they did they in the did beginning of this. <laughs> oh, Dolphins! Do they didn't even beat the Dolphins. <laughs> yeah. When like they the, needed to. I, like I mean, why were we even surprised? They lost to the Dolphins at home and their defense a week prior. was the reason why. I wasn't know, surprised I game. called that game, by the way. I mean, I think – so Brady's going to be 43, and he is coming off a not great season. Does that change the calculus for the Patriots? Would they rather – I don't know. I, 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 but start look, over? Again, I know everyone says this about this Patriot team, but who was he throwing? I mean, there's just clear, like, lack of weapons in the post-Gronk era. But he has made do with that type I mean, of thing he's throwing before, a Mohamed right? Sanu and, like, you know— Mohamed Sanu was a good receiver. He I was mean, a third receiver on his team, essentially. I mean, like, he wasn't sure, but he the wasn't guy. The, he wasn't the guy for the Patriots either. Edelman still was. Yeah, Julian Edelman still had 1,100 yards. It wasn't like a Carson Wentz throwing, you know, uh, nobody had over 500 yards or whatever that stat was with the Eagles. I mean, it was a weird receiving core. But they've had, I mean, that's been sort of a story for the uh, Pats 
especially after like that Welker Moss, you know, I mean, they had Gronk. Gronk, Gronk is the, well, is that the, the whole time. Is that the question it's here? All it's, goes, it, everything goes back to Gronk. Yeah, it's not like who's better, Brady or Belichick. It's actually, no, Gronk. I think they've won a Super Bowl with Gronk on the sidelines or maybe even two. Um, he did get hurt a lot. Yeah, he got they, hurt They've a definitely lot. played a lot of non-Gronk games. But that did help, you know, uh, the, the great thing about two of the best receivers that Brady ever threw to Gronk and Randy Moss is that they were always like hurt or suspended or like missed time. And you could always compare the team's performance with them or without. And it's no coincidence that those two guys are two of the best in history, maybe the two best in history in terms of the team's performance when they had them versus when they didn't have them after a kind of adjusting for the same quarterback and, and looking how the quarterback played with them versus without. So I don't know. I mean, I, I hesitate to say that Brady was sort of like made by these guys, but maybe it's also not a coincidence that when Brady got Moss in 2007, all of a sudden he is, you know, statistically the best quarterback in the league, breaks the touchdown record, and then he has this other security blanket with Gronk for a number of years after that um, to kind of uh, help his numbers. And then now that he doesn't have that career worst season. Also, he's 42. I mean, like, you can't escape that. Right. I mean, he's probably not going to get better at 43, right? And is he going to have better weapons next year? It depends how much water he drinks. I mean, maybe he's not drinking enough water. And the kale, yeah. Maybe he's not hydrated. I mean, it's really hydration. So in the game against the Titans, Derrick Henry rushed for 182 yards on 34 carries. 34 carries. Yeah. That's amazing. We've talked a lot on the show about the importance or lack thereof of the run game. What did Henry's performance tell us, Jeff? I mean, Henry's been great. I mean, I, and as someone who sort of have me personally, I've always kind of doubted Alabama running backs because <laughs> of, you know, Trent Richardson and, you know, TJ Yeldon, some of these guys who come to the league, but he's he's been great. And um, it the Patriots' plan was to, you know, we're going to take away – Tana Hills. Uh, amazing that I'm saying this sentence. They're going to take away Tannen Hills. Uh, what is happening? Um, and essentially bait Tennessee to run the ball every play. And Tennessee was like, yeah, we'll run the ball every play. And and, and it's going to work. Um, I don't think that's going to work against Baltimore. I right. think Tana Hills going to actually have to, you know, get his jersey dirty um, in this one. Although I will say that um, according to expected points added, just to put on my nerd hat here, um, the Ravens had a below average rushing defense um, after adjusting for strength of opponents during the year. They had a great pass defense, um, which is similar to the Patriots. The Patriots were actually a better run defense team and also a better pass defense during the year. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that same playbook, which was just, you know, the Patriots love to basically get out ahead force teams to pass against them, and then use guys like Stephon Gilmore to just be aggressive and jump routes, get interceptions, win that turnover battle. And the Titans never let them play that game plan. And the Ravens, I don't know. Like, maybe you could do a little bit of that also um, against the Ravens. The problem is that the Ravens are a much better offensive yeah, team. Exactly. And you're not going to be able to kind of, you know, keep up. Uh, with, keep up. Yeah. And also, yeah. they haven't seen Lamar Jackson yet. And a, a lot of what, you know, the narrative of the Ravens in the playoff was like the second time around, or in some cases, you know, maybe the third time around. Right, like, what the will, Chargers did to them last yeah, year. Yeah, like, playoffs, will, yeah. will they be able to adjust? Because he does seem to <laughs> really flummox teams the first time they play some well right and they're 13 point underdogs by our model which is a lot i think that's in line with with vegas though vegas opened at 10 i believe yeah Yeah. so i mean that's a lot of points (laughs) but warranted based on what 
the Ravens have done this season, right? Well, that's another thing that's really interesting that I guess we'll get our first taste of sort of stress testing is like how much of a favorite Baltimore is. Because I don't think a lot of um, people are giving them enough credit or talking about it enough. Our model gives them a 48% chance of winning the Super Bowl. I mean, the Patriots would have that sometimes, um, you know, at this stage of the playoffs, but that's a really heavy favorite. The next highest team in the model is Kansas City at 17%. So it's weird to say that it was less weird to say that about the Patriots because they had done it so many times before, kind of proven team uh, to, to win championships. The Ravens basically just are sort of this out of nowhere. Yes, they made the playoffs last year, but Jackson was nowhere near as good uh, as he's been this year. This year is basically the MVP of the league. They went 14-2. and two. Uh, Should we be skeptical still or more skeptical of a team like Baltimore that doesn't have that track record of doing it in the past than we would be if it said Patriots at the top and with that 48% number, do you think? I think we would be more skeptical. I'm not sure we should be. I mean, just based on what the Ravens have done this year, that seems right. I mean, I think they and I think a lot of people see them as the favorite, maybe not as overwhelming as we do. But I mean, they're deep, too. I mean, yeah. look, look what they did against the Steelers needed to win that game. And they were playing their backups yeah. and they were dominating. I really want to see a Ravens Chiefs AFC title game. That that seems really fun. It also seems really likely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happen. I'm looking at our model right now and seeing Minnesota standing there at 5% Super Bots. What are the Texans at? Well, like one percent, one percent. There's eight teams left. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I will say just to speak up for the Texans, I do have them in our Super Bowl draft. Wow! So really pulling for Deshaun Watson magic. So the last upset of the weekend, according to our model, featured the Seattle Seahawks beating the injury laden Eagles. Our ELO spread of uh, five and a half for the Eagles was a bit bolder than the betting lines, which saw the two teams more evenly matched. Well, I think Seattle was favored at close. Yeah. The CX went into the game with a stronger regular season record. So, Neil, what made them underdogs in this game? Well, I think uh, what the model was looking at going into that particular game was that, A, the Seahawks have been an extremely underwhelming team for the number of games that they've won. They have the point differential of probably like an 8-8 eight and eight team, and they won 11 games during the regular season because they had this historically great record in close games, which as nerd types like me will point out uh, again and again. It's, it's the second time you've called yourself a nerd. In this I know. Well, today. I got to reestablish my nerd, <laughs> nerd credentials cred. coming back. It's just been so long since we've been in the studio with Hot Takedown. But um, yeah, point differential is more predictive of a team's future success than their record when you have these disparities. So there was that. The The Seahawks hadn't really impressed down the stretch of the season. Russell Wilson had gone from MVP candidate to you know, kind of falling out of that conversation and not having his best games. He was on a cold streak. One of our things that we found in our research for adding the quarterback adjustment to our ELO model was that these short-term hot and cold streaks by a starting quarterback actually do add predictive value. And on the flip side of that, Carson Wentz was playing much better uh, down the stretch of the regular season. And so I think all of the – and the Eagles were at home. Again, the NFL, if you compare the the home team winning percentage – uh, in the playoffs 
to the home field advantage in the regular season for all of the four major sports, the NFL has the largest sort of playoff amplification effect to uh, home advantage. Um, and basketball is like kind of a close second, and those two are like way above baseball and hockey. I think in hockey, there actually it's is a disadvantage. No, yeah, it's almost <laughs> like a, th- there's no home ice advantage there. Um, so all of those things kind of went together. Unfortunately for the Eagles, Carson Wentz uh, got knocked out of that game uh, pretty early on. Yeah. Elo did not foresee Josh McCown playing all of that game. <laughs> yes. Josh <laughs> who did, McCown. Who did fine, by the <laughs> he way. He did an admirable job. So many 40-year-olds in the playoffs. Yeah. Weekend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Josh McCown, I, I don't know if Drew Brees is going off coaching uh, his son's high school team or something in the, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, every other week McCown, or something. The McCown, like McCown edge. Is. Um, so, and that to me was just like, it's so striking that under those circumstances, you would expect, okay, this is the game where the Seahawks will finally blow out a team. And they still, the, the, the Eagles had two chances in the last five minutes of that game to potentially tie the game inside the Seahawks 20. Um, uh, you know, they would have needed an extra point. But with Josh McCown hobbling around on one leg, like, come on guys, blow out a team, uh, that, that, that is well Way overmatched for once. Uh, didn't you kind of want to see Greg Ward have to play quarterback? <laughs> who was it a quarterback was at like Houston? It was come down to that. And was not yeah. a bad quarterback at Houston if memory serves. I mean, yeah. he could, it would have been interesting. Well, but, so what are the Seahawks' chances against the Packers this well, weekend? I, the problem with the Seahawks is that right now, without Carson, who's great, and Penny, who was a very high draft pick, they, they just have no running game whatsoever, and they're really one-dimensional. But Lynch. Marshawn Lynch, okay. I love this story. I'm, yeah. I'm happy he scored a touchdown. He, yeah, he'll be good in the like, goal line situations, but if they but if they run it, the ball, it was really just completely in Wilson's hands. And I think eventually that's going to catch up to you. I mean, TK Metcalf emerging right now as this what looks like a completely dominant receiving threat, yeah, is is a good thing, um, especially with Lockett out there also. So and, and Wilson obviously in a broken play out of the pocket is really dangerous and. It easily could have been an MVP in another non-Lamar Jackson year. Um, so that's, but that's still a challenge because anytime your team is completely one-dimensional, it gives a kind of easy scheme, I think, for for a Packers defense, which is much better. But we, should although also- not necessarily great. I don't think anyone knows how good this Packers team. Well, is. I was going to say the Packers are another team. You know, we can rag on the Seahawks for their point differential um, disparity against their record. I mean, the Packers. Uh, if you look at their points scored and allowed, they should have won nine point seven games, uh, and they won. They went thirteen and three. So they're another. These are the two teams that sort of most defied uh, expectations in terms of you know not having a very overwhelming point differential, but still having a great record. Uh, and so I think it's fair to kind of question the Packers too. You know, I mean, they're playing at home. That's probably the biggest thing that's driving the um the the prediction in the game because our model has uh green bay at 74 percent to win but i mean aaron Rodgers did not have a vintage aaron Rodgers season either and really has not been sort of the guy that we think of as aaron Rodgers in a while now so you know i think there are things to sort of criticize about both teams which you could have also said about the eagles it's it's kind of interesting that philly and seattle played all of these like grinded out games, you know, uh, not not pretty games, and then now you have Green Bay just waiting there, and I don't know what that game is going to look like either. I do love that this the playoff game between Philly and Seattle and their regular season game are both 
ugly 17, 17 to 9. To nine. <laughs> and the <laughs> Eagles, wins. when they beat Dallas in that um, NFC East play-in game, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that one was also 17 to 9. Oh, wow. And then if you go back to the fourth most recent 17 to 9 game in NFL history, it also involved the Seahawks. It was in 2017. So each of the last four games in NFL history that have uh, had a 17 to 9 score either involved the Eagles or the Seahawks or both of them. Wow. Fun fact. That is really yeah. random. I Talk about rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the only game in which the favorite actually won saw the Houston Texans eking out an overtime victory against the Buffalo Bills. That game was wild. It was, I couldn't, it just was amazing. It was such a nice start to the wildcard weekend to get just such chaos there. The Texans head into the next round as underdogs against the Kansas City Chiefs. Is there any potential for an upset there? To me, this one seems... Like the big, I mean, I, I say this now, and the Texans are definitely winning. But this, this is the one I feel <laughs> most confident in is KC winning this game because I don't think Houston should be there. Um, I don't know what happened. I mean, with Buffalo, that Josh, was Josh Allen happened. The, I mean, but then he was also kind of good. I mean, he like sometimes he was, really he was good. good. To start the first half, he was just out of control. Yeah, it was just yeah. like I. I wanted to just like, like just he, someone needed to tell him just calm, <laughs> Pull him aside. calm, calm down, calm down, son. I like I mean, the image. He was like completely playing like a man on fire. I like the image of Jeff Foster on the sideline. Come here, time out, time out, Josh. I gotta talk to you. Calm down. Who's this guy? Calm. Quarterback whisperer. Breathe. You're not oh. breathing. You could see he wasn't breathing. Wow, <laughs> that the lateral uh, lateral that to play no one was the <laughs> most amazing play I think I've ever seen. Um, it was really it was a, a thing of. Beauty. He is. I mean, look, he showed his age, obviously, but he he also then shows play. I mean, also the throw to the fullback into double coverage. I mean, what? Would, I mean, there were just some real mind-boggling bad plays. Well, and the Bills went away from what was working, which I mean, Allen was running a lot in the first half, yeah. and it was working really well. And then the second half, it's like they panicked and and he threw all all over the place, and it was and crazy. Deshaun, Deshaun and Watson's no also just great. I mean, like he's gonna, you know. Yeah, he, you can't count him he's out. He's a special quarterback. And so. I th- yeah, I think that so maybe was, they will beat the Chiefs. <laughs> it was <laughs> no. no coincidence though that that game sort of hinged around like quarterback A playing poorly while quarterback B played well, and then it flipped because those were two of the most inconsistent quarterbacks in the league. I think you know guys that obviously Watson is just at a baseline plays at a higher plays quarterback at a much higher level than Josh Allen but I think you can sort of draw a comparison between the two in the sense that they're both capable of amazing plays and really dumb boneheaded plays and everything kind of in between um and so yeah just Houston got more of the good from their quarterback than than Buffalo did uh, by game's end well, I hope that the divisional round is as entertaining as the wild card round was. It was so much fun to watch. And every game, it was the first time since 1991 that all four wild card games ended with uh, within one score, which is kind of crazy. Like yeah. you don't see that. You just don't see that very often when all of the games are really good. Yeah, and the, and the underdog um, and or the road team won the majority of the games, which is a little bit – I don't know. It's kind of a letdown in the sense that now it's created all of these sort of lopsided second round games. But at the same time, more upset potential. Yeah. Come on, underdogs. Show up. 
LSU and Clemson will face off on Monday in the college football championship. Both teams are undefeated and both feature elite quarterbacks. Trevor Lawrence, who led Clemson to a national championship last year, and LSU's Joe Burrow, the 2019 Heisman winner. Here's Emmanuel Acho on ESPN's first take on which quarterback will have a bigger impact on the championship game. I like Burrow because to bet against Burrow would be idiotic. You've seen what he's done. Not only a historic season by figure of speech, an historic season literally. 538 contributor Josh Planos wrote this week about Joe Burrow's historic season. Jeff, could you give us a sense of what exactly was so exceptional about his season? It was um, a a lot of yards and touchdowns. <laughs> wow, that's insightful. Yeah, analysis yeah, right no. There. I mean, I I looked at the tape. <laughs> you know, I watched every LSU game, sure, and then yeah. I realized that he threw fifty-five touchdowns and five thousand two hundred and eight yards, and I was like, "He's good. He's good, guys." That last um, couple of yards, really and put three. It over the top. This is the the fun fact of this Josh Plano story is that three touchdowns he ties Colt Brennan, and if you watched. I don't know if anyone watched the old Colt Brennan Hawaii teams, but that was like yeah, me. June, June Jones. Yeah, it Run was it was it was ridiculous. It was just like fifty plus a game. It was it was nonstop offense. Yeah, against every opponent until I think they played Georgia and, and got Georgia decimated. Just destroyed them. <laughs> and we're like, oh wait. They're just in a really bad division. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what's interesting to me about this Joe Burrow uh, season is you mentioned he had the 55 touchdowns against only six interceptions. Mind-boggling. And then if you look at the best seasons in history at um, college football reference, it only goes back to 2000, so it doesn't catch, you know— like I don't know um, Andre Ware or some you know some of these crazy ones from before that, but it does have like most of the like Mike Leach uh, guys. So you have Mahomes like, years, yeah, yeah, Mahomes, B.J. Simmons, B.J. Simmons had fifty two touchdowns in two thousand three with Texas Tech. Uh, Case have, Keenum must be up there. Yeah, uh, yeah, Case Keenum for Houston had forty eight touchdowns against five interceptions. Graham Harrell, another Texas Tech guy, forty eight touchdowns, fourteen interceptions. Now some of the more recent Washington State guys. Uh, uh, Anthony Gordon, uh, Gardner Minshew uh, could be in that <laughs> yes. uh, conversation. But what I'm saying is, is that w- with few exceptions, so you have like Dwayne Haskins, you know, uh, at Ohio State in 2018, 50 touchdowns, eight picks. Sam Bradford, same, you know, when he was at Oklahoma, he had 50 touchdowns, eight picks. But aside from a few edge cases, the vast majority of these burrow esque seasons were done in small uh, conferences, not you know, not uh, uh, power conferences, on some of these trick offense teams with leech and and run and shoot uh, type guys, air raid type um, coaches, uh, and then you have Joe Burrow doing it for LSU in the SEC, facing this like gauntlet of defenses, and he throws fifty five touchdowns. It's it's incredible. He has taken the numbers that you would expect from these like video game trick offenses, where you can just easily write it off and be like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a product of the system. And he's done it under these really, really difficult circumstances. And also, a lot of those, I mean, those Washington State or Texas Tech teams had horrible defenses and were, you know, giving up touchdowns on every series. So they kind of had to throw nonstop. You would think LSU would be dominating, controlling games, and you wouldn't get as many opportunities to put up these numbers, which makes it more remarkable. What's interesting to me is what a leap he took, that Joe Burrow took from 2018 to 2019. 2018, he had 16 touchdowns on uh, 2894 yards. 
So he went to 55 touchdowns and almost twice as many yards. How how does how does a quarterback make that kind of jump? Is it scheme based? Is it? I mean, it came out of nowhere. I think part of it is the system. I mean, look, you watch LSU games, and he's got a lot of talent around him. You, I, I've, I've watched a lot of Joe Burrow touchdown passes where a guy's just running down the middle of the field wide open. You know, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds like I'm knocking his accomplishments, but it is a very good scheme and it is a very talent rich offense that he's playing in. So, but, but it's also worth pointing out that he's also very good. <laughs> well, so in 2017, Danny Etling was the uh, starter for LSU. Ed Orgeron, still the head coach. Uh, Steve Ensminger, the offensive coordinator, he was a tight ends coach at that time, but still in the system. So ostensibly the same scheme. He put together 2,463 yards, 16 touchdowns, two picks. Those are basically carbon copy numbers that Burrow did the very the next night, yeah. year. Same coach, same system. So I I think it's unlike anything that we've ever seen before where a guy whose predecessor puts up similar numbers, he himself puts up similar numbers in the in the first season that he's there. He's also he's obviously older also, you know, he transferred from Ohio State uh and and so on and so forth. Thank God by the way, we don't have to hear that storyline uh for 2 weeks uh, ad nauseum. Um but uh <laughs> To suddenly just come out with this season after that track record for both the school's quarterbacks and himself is just mind-boggling. It is interesting that there have been flaws in the defenses that he has faced, um, you know, Oklahoma in particular. But so he's going to face the best defense he's played all year in Clemson. Does he need to win this game to sort of solidify his his place in that quarterback hierarchy none of the guys who neil named have won national championships so you know that usually teams don't aren't built like this i mean i guess you could say lawrence and tua and some of the teams recently you know have followed this model of of having a very good dynamic offense but usually you're not seeing these like comic numbers on On a a national championship team yeah especially (laughs) out of the sec where traditionally you know alabama would have you know like a aj mccarran type that would yeah just enough i mean like the the lsu teams with leonard fournette and darius guys they just run the ball every play and that that works in college football if you have a dominant defense like lsu typically does and alabama typically does yeah And I I think also Clemson, I mean, with Trevor Lawrence, they sort of have a lot more to prove in this in terms of how much of his performance was just done against a very weak ACC schedule. Because if you think about the teams that um, Burrow and LSU beat, I mean, they beat Texas, they beat Florida, they beat Auburn, they beat Alabama, they beat Georgia, they beat Oklahoma. They went through this like crazy schedule of of really top-ranked teams uh, all year long. So I don't know that if he doesn't throw for seven touchdowns in the first half or <laughs> something like that um, against Clemson, I don't know that it really takes that much away because he's already proven it against a bunch of other teams that are at least ostensibly on Clemson's level. The The thing that was most surprising to me was just that Clemson actually beat Ohio State in the end. I mean, it was a back-and-forth game and could have gone either way, but Ohio State was, by a considerable margin, the the most legitimate team that Clemson had faced in, like, a calendar year. <laughs> um, so Clemson basically took the whole season at, as, like, 
an extended series of exhibition games basically in the ACC, whereas LSU was out there each week having to like prove itself against much, much, much tougher competition. Well, so you make a compelling case for LSU being the better team, Neil, but our model actually has Clemson favored. I know, and that is actually pretty shocking because Vegas has um, has LSU as a five-and-a-half-point favorite. They opened it at uh, six, and yet our model, which is based on ESPN's football power index for predictions, uh, has Clemson as a narrow 53% favorite in the game. Clemson currently ranks second in FPI um, behind Ohio State, and LSU is only third. But I think most predictors do think that LSU should be favored in this game. And LSU is number one in ELO. So, I mean... Theoretically, we and have they're number that, one right? in like the the seedings of right, the, yeah. you know <laughs> in the polls and everything like that. So I think that it is sort of the disparity in the um, the preseason expectations. And I guess nothing has happened to change our opinion of Clemson. But then again, nothing could have happened to change our opinion up until the the Ohio State game. Right. I mean, they haven't lost. That's the <laughs> bottom line. They haven't lost. It, it's almost like the, the first half of that game the, uh, against Ohio State. It was. I think everyone was saying, "Oh, wait, this team really hasn't played anyone good, and now they're playing someone good, and they they can't do anything." And then that targeting penalty um, against Lawrence seemed to change everything. I don't know. I mean, if if, if it made uh, Ohio State less aggressive, but he starts running more, and it just kind of unlocked the whole offense. So, are either of you tempted into? taking clemson yeah i'm taking clemson are you really yeah all right i'll take lsu then i'll yeah. I'll, I'll bear clemson. that burden <laughs> with a p Clemp- clemson. clemson um I, I have to take lsu too i've liked lsu this whole season so i'm I've, i was an early adopter yeah you were and i like the fact that they it's almost like ridiculous to say this because lsu is also one of the like cream of the crop blue chip programs in college football history but they're not alabama they're not ohio state they're not Clemson. They're not these teams that have dominated recently, recently yeah, yeah, yeah. in the college football playoff. Uh, and so it would be refreshing. We would get to see the the number six ranked preseason AP team win instead of the number one or number two yeah. win. All right. Well, next week, um, the game is on Monday. So we'll get to talk about whether we were uh, right or Jeff was wrong <laughs> Tuesday morning. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, start us off. So while we were all watching the exciting end of the Texans-Bills game on Saturday evening, Vince Carter of the Atlanta Hawks made a little bit of basketball history. So when he took the floor against the Pacers... At age 42, he became somehow the first player in NBA history to appear in a game in four separate decades. So Carter made his debut all the way back on February 5th, 1999, playing for the Toronto Raptors against the Celtics. He scored 16 points with three rebounds and two assists in 31 minutes in the 90s. Uh, On Saturday, 20 years, 11 months, and four days later, scoring three points with three rebounds and one assist in 18 minutes. Uh, he joined a four-decade sports club that has 29 different members in baseball, including, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., Ted Williams, also one of our favorites, Jamie Moyer, uh, longtime lefty soft-tossing pitcher. He appeared in four different decades. Uh, there are only two members in football. They're both kickers, or at least kind of. John Carney and George Blanda, who also played quarterback um, for the Raiders. <laughs> Apologies to Tom Brady. He could have joined this club, but he debuted in November of 2000. He was a year too late. 
to represent the 90s. Sorry, Sad. Tom. Yeah. Uh, and then there are 14 members in hockey. Three of them actually joined the club last week. Zdeno Chara, Joe Thornton, and Patrick Marlowe. Hockey also, as a side note, has Gordie Howe, who appeared in games in five different decades. He debuted at age 18 in 1946, and he also played his final game at age 52 in 1980, which is just insane. But that was with the Whalers? Uh, I believe so, yeah, with the Whalers. We just got the Whalers in the podcast. We should be. We, There's yeah, been we, way too much hockey. Devils, we have, Whalers. Yeah. Got, anytime you get a Whalers mention, you've won. That's right. Um, cue Brass Bonanza, Grace. <laughs> But anyway, this rabbit hole isn't about Carter's decade-spanning career as much as it's just about the player Carter once was and what he is now. So Carter is an eight-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA player. He was 10th in MVP voting in 2000. He was second overall in our Raptor wins above replacement metric in 2001. According to basketballreference.com, Carter has a 95% chance of making the Hall of Fame. I think that might be underselling his chances. He also gave us the best dunk contest performance ever (laughs) in February of 2000. So we're talking about a legitimately all-time great NBA player. And when a player like that tends to get older, they kind of tend to keep playing with a style that they played with at their peak, but just at a lower level. Uh, So the guys that can adapt to their reduced skills are the ones that manage to hang on the longest. But basically, one of these great players' career usually ends after a few seasons when they try to do what they've always done and it just becomes clear that it doesn't work anymore. They can't do it or they don't have the endurance or durability to kind of do it over the grind of a full season anymore. So I think back to Peyton Manning in 2015, he got benched in favor of Brock Osweiler before coming back and and sort of guiding them uh, as as kind of a caretaker on that Super Bowl run. He didn't go to the bench by design. He tried to be the same Peyton that had thrown for 55 touchdowns a few years before. He just couldn't do it anymore uh, and, and also just didn't have the same arm strength, same mobility, anything like that. And when it became clear, he retired. He wasn't going to like stand on the sidelines and hold the clipboard for whoever replaced him as the starter. Similar to Michael Jordan with the Wizards, he was a shadow of the player he used to be. He walked away from the game rather than hang around long enough to just be a role player at the end of the bench. That's why Carter is interesting to me because he's different. He was a star for a long time, and it's also been a really long time since he was a star. After he left New Jersey in 2009, he's bounced around between six different teams, the Magic, the Suns, the Mavs, the Grizzlies, the Kings, and now the Hawks. And he hasn't been any better than 95th in Raptor War since 2014. He hasn't averaged more than 14 points per game since 2010, 10 years ago, and he hasn't even averaged double figures in the last six seasons. So right now, he logs 16 minutes tonight scores a little bit over five points per game and that's really not what we would have ever expected a player like him to put up in a season when we were watching him in his prime we would have figured he would have retired long before sort of hitting that level now he hasn't stayed past his welcome exactly i mean he's still an above average player by raptor as recently as 2018 he carved out a niche as a wing who could do a little bit of everything you know scoring shooting rebounding and even now he's a locker room mentor he's kind of admitted that he is for younger hawks like trey young and john collins but that's sort of what makes Carter an exception to the rule of NBA stardom because he's been willing to sublimate his ego in a way that we've never seen a player in recent NBA history do. In fact, I even quantified this. I went back to the merger and looked for players who had qualified seasons where they played 40 games, where they had both 20 or more points per game and fewer than 10 points per game. 
In his career, Carter had 11 seasons with 20 or more points per game, which is tied for the 15th most of any player since 1976. But he's also had five seasons under 10 points per game, and he could possibly add a sixth this year if he plays just 10 more games. So that's easily the most single-digit point-per-game seasons by any player who had at least 10 seasons with 20 or more points per game. The only other player who's really even like that is Gary Payton, who was above 29 times but had four single-digit points-per-game seasons. So Carter is really unique in the history of basketball in the way that he's been both a true superstar and a true role player by choice in the same career. He told Kevin Arnovitz last summer that nobody is bigger than the game, and he's sort of living by that. He stayed in the game a long time. He's gone through multiple evolutions as a player, from a huge star to a secondary scorer to a role player, and now something even below that, just a mentor who doesn't really play much and seldom scores. But that's a really great formula for sticking around long enough to play in four different decades in pro sports. The only reason we hardly ever see it is because I don't think many stars can kind of rein in their ego enough to go through that full evolution that Carter did. And I think that's one of the things that makes Vince Carter special as a player. It's interesting. Like you brought up the example of Peyton Manning. There's no like in between from being the starting quarterback to being the guy on the sideline. Like there's no like that's the interesting thing about basketball that you can be a role player. You can still play some and impart your wisdom to to the new crop of stars or whatever. You can't really do that I mean, in the NFL. You can be NFL. a backup quarterback. Right, but you're not going to play. Right. Like, but you can't, Eli, like, and Eli Manning, you know, we were talking about him earlier. He doesn't want to be a backup quarterback. It's not. It's just not worth it right. um, to sit there and, and hold Daniel Jones's clipboard. I mean, you know, he'll he'll if he starts, he'll he'll. He'll keep playing, but if he's if he's not going to play, then he's not. There's no point in going through the all training and the rigorous, you know, life of a pro athlete. And there's something for Carter that I mean, obviously, he feels like it is worth it because he has gone through all of that, you know, rigor to be able to kind of stay in the NBA, knowing that he's not really going to contribute, you right. know, very much. I mean, the Hawks aren't going to make the playoffs. In addition to ego, he's also willing to move. He's okay with moving. He's okay with bouncing around the country. And you saw that. Like, it reminds me a little bit of Ricky Henderson when Ricky Henderson was just, I'll, I'll play for anybody and I'm just going to keep playing until people stop giving yeah. me jobs. And he was playing with the Newark Bears <laughs> when MLB right. teams weren't giving him jobs because right. he didn't want to stop playing baseball, which, this, I, which I also understand yeah, because you're that, playing a game for a living. Is and that just the love, the love of the game and just not wanting to give that I up? I think it that takes it a matter. certain type of athlete who's who's willing to like put in that much work for that long. I mean, it is it takes a huge toll on the body yeah. and it takes a huge toll on the mind. And if certain people sort of fit that mold and are willing to, you know, put their ego in check and, and play a, in a limited capacity. And I don't think there's anything wrong with Eli Manning being like, oh, I'm not going to start. Yeah, then I get I'm done. It. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense. It's a huge, it is a huge burden. It's, a you know, the toll it takes on your body and um, and not getting to actually play would be like, why? Why yeah, would you go through that? Yeah, that's the reward that you're supposed yeah. to kind of get. Um, and I wonder with Carter, is it just, you know, being a player, being a pro athlete becomes part of your identity, you know, when you do it for so long that you find this with a lot of retired players. It's very difficult for them to envision themselves, what what they do with the rest of their life. You, you sort of – it's unique in the sense that, um, you know, when we're – I don't know, well, most people work – nine to five jobs and they retire in their 60s, uh, God willing, uh, these days. <laughs> and, and and they, you know, they can kind of retire and do what they want with the rest uh, of their free time, but they don't have to figure that out for like, 
many, many, many decades worth of what to do with the rest of their life, you know, when, when your job kind of defines you uh, for so long. A pro athlete is even Vince Carter. He said he's going to retire at the end of this season. He'll be in his early 40s. He'll have to make decisions about how he spends the rest of his time and, and the money that he's made, uh, but also figure out what to do with his identity after, mm-hmm. you know, being a pro athlete, the thing that has kind of defined him as we noted in four different decades, is gone. And I think that's hard to walk away from. And I think sure. that played into the Ricky Henderson thing. He just could not imagine being anything other than baseball player. For us, we could keep writing or editing or whatever forever. It doesn't, you know. When well, you... until all the journalism jobs are gone. For sure. I have this vision, Neil, of you retired but still, like, putting out a blog on sports data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With a beard, a full beard, a gray Much beard. Much like yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Wait, we're I just talking gray, about Jeff. literally have a gray beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.